Thank you all for coming and joining us in this conference of Christian Reconstruction being held here in San Jose and the 80th birthday party for uh, Mr. R.J., Reverend R.J. Rushduni. I recognize and, and realize, as does as, as Andrea and the other people who have helped put this together, that for many of you, coming here uh, was a tremendous effort. It meant organizing your schedules around uh, this event uh, months and months in advance, having this be your vacation period. Um, it meant a substantial investment in terms of uh, funds just to uh, fly here or in some cases drive here from uh, another country, <laughs> Canada. Uh, it is a tremendous honor to uh, be able to stand in front of all of you and to host this. Tremendous honor. Welcome to you all. Uh, I'd like to start by asking uh, Reverend Mark Rustini to come up and lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Our most good and gracious Heavenly Father, it is so good for you to bring us all here together. And we thank you, first of all, for all those who have done so much to aid the ministry of my father and the work of Chalcedon and the work of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. As they have been mindful of the needs of thy kingdom, we pray that you would be mindful of them. As we have received of the benefit of their generosity, we pray that they would receive of the benefit of thy goodness. We thank you for the purpose and meaning that your Son, Jesus Christ, gives to our life, the direction that it provides us in time and in history and in all of eternity. We pray that you would enrich us in, with this assembly. We pray that it would encourage us and instruct us. We pray that we would be filled with a renewed sense of faithfulness to your word. We pray that you would teach us to love thy commandments and to hold fast to your promises. We pray that you expand the laborers in your kingdom. We pray most of all for thy grace so that we might do the will of our Master and our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, now I have uh, the pleasure of introducing somebody who's probably the reason why most of you are here. Uh, of course, I'm speaking of uh, Reverend Rushduni. Uh, he's been called the father of the homeschool movement. He certainly is the father of Christian Reconstruction, along with being the founder and president of Chalcedon Foundation. Um, probably each one of you in this room, if only through his his books, if that's the only way you've known him, or other publications, or having heard some of his tape ministry, have your own personal anecdotes or reasons or the way in which he has touched your lives. Um, over the last 11 years, the way in which he's touched my family's life is uh, uh, something that is impossible 
to fully convey or even begin to convey, except to say that he has touched my life, he's given me uh, legs to my faith. Uh, shortly after my conversion, I was having a conversation, my wife and I were with uh, someone who was a little more savvy than we were, and we were attempting to instruct this person in the faith, and the fellow looked at us and in the most direct possible way said, you are a couple of idiots. The only chance you have is, if you want to do this at all seriously, is to get some instruction from somebody who knows something. Now, mind you, we had invited him to our house for dinner. He gave me a little book list of people to read. This guy, Calvin, I'm sure somebody in here has heard of him, was on it. There was another name, and then there was a fellow named Rush Dooney in something called Institutes of Biblical Law. Well, we searched to try to find this guy, Rush Dooney, and these Institutes of Biblical Law, and uh, along with reading the other people on the list who read him, uh, my wife, who, if any of you know her, is not exactly reticent to pick up a telephone and call people, suddenly had us directly in touch with this fellow who I was sure was living uh, somewhere in the clouds and uh, couldn't possibly be a real human being. Well, it turned out that he was a very real human being and over the years has spent... Uh, Hours, and believe me, I needed them, hours and hours uh, of time, of his own personal time, uh, answering my questions, theological questions, guiding me as uh, somebody who was trying to get my act together, and guiding me in terms of uh, what it would be to uh, be a, uh, a father in a society that was a barbaric society, attempting to live by biblical principles, guiding me in terms of uh, situations that would come up in my work, in my profession, and guiding my family. So there is no way on earth, and I sincerely mean that, to in any way convey my gratitude to this man. Now, adding to that, I have the honor of standing for all of you, some of you who uh, came to him and weren't idiots, came to him and did know something, and were still instructed. It's a tremendous honor to be able to, at this time, and to this group, introduce Reverend R.J. Rushduni. A few minutes ago, some friends of 
many years standing, the Duskins from Indiana, handed me a present. I haven't opened it, but the wrapping was a delight. It reads, Happy Birthday, Ancient One. (laughs) Well, at 80, the thing that comes to mind is a line from Fiddler on the Roof. If you saw it, you remember when Tevye turned to his wife at the wedding of their daughter and said, I don't remember growing older. But I realize that at 80, and my memory goes back to World War I, I have a good memory about almost everything except what my wife told me five minutes ago. (laughs) But it is a sobering thought to realize that over half the population of the world has been born since 1950. And if you go back to 1940, the overwhelming majority of the present world was not yet born. Well, it's a very, very different world. In the world of those days, most people, even in cities, did not lock their doors. Crime was very limited. Even in Chicago with the Capone mob, the killings in a whole year regarded as sensational the world over sometimes are surpassed there in a single month without much notice. It was a much safer world. In those days, daily papers reported on the front page each Monday a sermon preached in one of the churches the day before. This year, the Los Angeles Times pulled the B.C. comic strip because it spoke about the atonement. The world has changed. Well, by God's grace, we are going to change it to something better than it has ever been. Over the years, I have been very often interviewed by reporters and uh, magazine writers, and the results have been uniformly bad. I'm going to begin in a minute by telling you what I tell each of them when I begin, and no one has ever reported it. In fact, a major 
American newspaper called me about ten days ago, and I corrected them on what their opinion of Christian Reconstruction was, and I explained what I'm about to tell you. And the reporter exclaimed, that's very radical, it's too far out. He still did not include it. Maybe he thought he was being kindly to me. What was it that I told him? Something I've told writer after writer, and they refuse to begin with that as my starting point. It's simply this, that in our culture today, in this century in particular, the word government has changed its meaning drastically. When you say government today, you mean the state. And that's altogether wrong. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and let's read the first 12 verses. The title of the message is Salvation Illustrated and Explained. John 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to thee, you must be born again. The wind blows whether it mist it, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell which it cometh, or whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Art thou master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say to thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I want to just tell you that there are times of amusement and refreshment when I do my studying. As I was thinking about this message, I almost gave another title to it. Uh, how many of you have seen these books uh, on computers, uh, like Word Perfect for Dummies, Microsoft for Dummies. I thought, maybe I should entitle this message, Salvation for Dummies. But, but, you know, but then I figured someone would probably take it personal. But do you understand, in truth, all of us are dummies, apart from the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Here was a master in Israel. Here was a ruler in John 3. And he had no clue as to what our Lord was saying. Now I'm going to ask to explain the relationship between regeneration and conversion. We need to have a proper understanding of these two distinct but separate works of God if we're going to be able to distinguish or discern whether or not one is genuinely converted. Now, unhappily, most Christians can neither define nor distinguish between regeneration and conversion. In fact, the average Christian usually takes these two terms, regeneration and conversion, and thinks that these two terms are synonymous, and thus they use them interchangeably. To show you the vast confusion on the subject, even Billy Graham wrote a book entitled How to Be Born Again. The interesting thing is, nowhere in the Bible does God ever tell you how to be born again. Now, he tells you in John 3 and verse 3 and in John 3 and verse 7 that you must be born again, but nowhere does the Bible tell you how to be born again. Why? Well, the answer is very simple. Because being born again, regeneration, or the new birth, is a divine act of God alone. It is something that God does and not something that man does. Now, I want you to hold John 3, but look in your Bibles very quickly to the book of James, chapter 1, and just verse 18. James, chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm going to just deal primarily with half of this verse today because this is the part that is important in relationship to the message. James 1, verse 18. The scripture says, referring to God, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now notice if you would, of his own will begat he us. Now, let me give you a quick quote. Albert Barnes in his commentary on James gives a simple sentence in relationship to verse 18. Here's what he said, quote, The idea that the fact that we are begotten to be his children is to be traced solely to his will. He purposed it, and it was done. The antecedent in the case on which all depended was the sovereign will of God, end quote. Let me put it to you very plainly. When God regenerates or begets, he does so based upon his own will and his own purpose. No one is ever begotten accidentally. When God moves, he moves deliberately and purposefully. 
Now, in James 1.18, the Bible said, Of his own will begat he us. Now, the word begat is from the Greek word apostuleo, which literally means to bring forth, to beget, to bring forth from the womb, to give birth, to cease being pregnant. Of his own will, he brought us forth from the womb. Of his own will, he begat us. Moreover, this word begat is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means it is something that happens one time, it is something that happens once for all, it is not to be repeated over again. There is absolutely no such thing as someone being born again and again and again and again. No. What God does, he does once and for all, because God's work is perfect, it needs not be repeated. Now, in John chapter 3, we have one of the clearest evidences in the New Testament and one of the clearest teachings on the doctrine of regeneration proper. Now, before I go too far in this study, I want you to understand that in actuality, the first 12 verses in John chapter 3 deal with regeneration. You don't get to conversion until later on down to about verse 14. So let me, by way of introduction today, give you several distinctions between regeneration and conversion, and I'm going to be explaining these for you. Now, listen carefully. Some of these are almost repetition, but yet there is a little distinction between them. And I'm going to tell you the most important thing to remember in this particular message. So here are seven distinctions between regeneration and conversion. First of all, listen carefully. Regeneration is the immediate act of God. Let me just stop right there. When we use the term immediate, or the term immediate, theologically speaking, Here's what we mean. Here's what the theologians mean. If, an, if something is an immediate work of God, it means that God does it alone. He does not use means. If God does something immediately, it means he uses means. Okay? Would you call creation an immediate or immediate work of God? It would be an immediate work of God. Okay? So regeneration, then, here's the distinction. Regeneration is the immediate act of God in imparting the principle of life. Conversion is an act of man by the power of the Holy Spirit in repenting and believing. So, in regeneration, man is inactive. Man has nothing to do with it. It's an immediate act of God. But in conversion, certainly man is included and man is active because he's the one that turns and believes in Jesus Christ. Now, so regeneration is an immediate act of God by which he imparts life. Here's the second distinction. Regeneration is a single act of God and is never repeated. Conversion is the beginning of a holy life. And you might say it like this, there also may be many conversion experiences in the Christian's life. You say, what are you talking about? Well, look in your Bibles very quickly to Luke chapter 22. Now, it is true that there is an initial conversion, and that's what we refer to most often. But in that initial conversion, what do we do? We repent of our sins, and we believe in Jesus Christ. But I want you to note how Jesus Christ was talking to Peter. Peter was already a believer. He was already an apostle. And Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, And the Lord said, said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sit you as me. For I pray for thee that thy faith fail not. Now watch, he already has faith. I pray for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The word converted just means to be turned back. So, you may be doing something in your Christian life, that is unbiblical, and then it's brought to your attention, and thus it is proper to say you were converted from that unbiblical act and brought your life into conformity to the Word of God. So we talk about the initial conversion originally. That's what most of us think of. But you can continue a life of conversion where you are converting your life into conformity to the Word of God. So it has a continuation as well. So the second distinction is this. Regeneration is a single act of God that never is repeated. Conversion certainly has an initial act, but then it can be repeated throughout one's earthly pilgrimage. Also, you could say it like this. The position of the believer in Jesus Christ by virtue of regeneration can neither be increased nor decreased. Now listen carefully. The condition of a Christian's life can vary based upon one's own experiences. There is no one in this room that is more regenerated than anyone else. There is no one in this room that is less regenerated than anyone else. Regeneration is perfect in and of itself. It is a single act of God, never to be repeated. Number three, regeneration is in itself not an experience. Conversion is a series of Christian experiences. Now, just listen to this next statement. I'm going to explain this a little bit later. But I'm just trying to draw a distinction. I'm trying to show you that regeneration is not an experience. As there is no consciousness at the time of conception in the womb, so regeneration is not a matter of consciousness to its recipient. A person knows nothing of the beginning of his existence. That is true physically. That is true spiritual. Conversion, however, is always, as always, there is an awareness of what is taking place. Therefore, it is experiential. Repentance and faith are experiences known to the person born of God. Okay? Number four. Regeneration is the cause of an individual turning to the Lord. Conversion is the regenerate person actually turning. God may give life. But God does not turn for the individual. God does not repent for the individual. God does not believe for the individual. That is something that we do in conversion by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number five, regeneration is the Lord opening the heart. 
Conversion is the person whose heart that has been opened, turning to Christ, their obedience and faith, and following Him based upon the Word of God. Number six, regeneration is a once-for-all cleansing. Conversion is a continuation of the renewal, which began in regeneration. And then number seven, in regeneration we have God's power, the power of the indwelling Spirit. In conversion, the power is not of us, but it is in us by God's sovereign choice and God's grace and God's mercy. Now let me just tell you, if you understand this or this series of simple distinctions between regeneration and conversion, it will remove all pride and all boasting from preachers and all other Christians who want to boast about their success in reaching others. You know what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7? Let me just put it for you. He said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, or he that watereth anything, but God that giveth the increase. If you understand this distinction, you will know the only reason anyone is ever saved is because of the work of God. Now let me tell you what you must remember at this critical point, okay? If you don't remember this, you're not going to follow me in the, in the sermon today. Here's what you must remember. Regeneration is the implantation of divine life into the soul. And conversion is the evidence and exercise of that life having been planted by God. Let me say that again. Regeneration is what? It is the implantation of divine life into the soul. That's what regeneration is. And conversion is the evidence and the exercise of that life having been planted by God. Now the question is, how do we explain this simple truth? Well, I told you in times past, and I'm about to remind you right now, that there are three simple illustrations of salvation in the New Testament, and only three. The first one is that of birth in John 3, which is our text. The second one is that of creation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, and chapter 5 and verse 17. And the third illustration is that of resurrection, found in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. Now, we're not going to take the time to look at all those right now. But in each of these illustrations, in each one, the Bible clearly demonstrates the absolute necessity of divine intervention. For instance, there can be no birth apart from the will of the Father. There can be no creation apart from the speaking of his word of power. By the way, without you turning there, can you help me out? In Psalm 33, the Bible said he spake, and what happened? And the world came into existence. Okay? So just like there can be no birth apart from the will and the beginning of the Father, there can be no creation apart from his speaking word of power, and there can be no resurrection apart from a supernatural power outside of the dead man. Listen carefully. Man does not beget himself, man does not create himself, and man does not resurrect himself. In each instance, there must be an outside power, a power that is independent of man. Now, in John 3 and verse 3, our Lord issues a very startling declaration of Nicodemus. Look at it. Jesus answered and said to him, Very, very, or truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know what happens in verses 1 and 2. I think this is very interesting. There was a man of Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay? So here's a man who's very scholarly, very educated. He's a ruler. The same thing to Jesus by night didn't want to be seen, or it could be that he was very urgent in this business, either one. But the same thing to Jesus by night, he said, Rabbi, we know without a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles without us except God be with him. And what does our Lord do? Our Lord says, Nicodemus, let's not miss words. Let's just cut to the chase. Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let me point something out in this sentence that is very important. First of all, the Greek word, which is translated here again, is the Greek word anthem. And it literally means, first and foremost, from above. So you can read verse 3 like this. Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Same thing in verse 7. Marvel not that I say to thee, you must be born from above. Now, it is true that one must be born again. Now, listen to me. By virtue of one's physical birth, he is born below, that is, he is of the earth earthy. If one wishes to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again, that is, from above, that is, he must be born by the supernatural power of God. Now, go back to verse 3. Jesus answered and said, Now, very, very, I said to thee, except a man be born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you need to underline the word cannot. The Greek word there is the word dynamite, by the way. It is where we get our English words, dynamite, dynamic, dynamo. The word dunamai actually means to have the power or have the ability in oneself to be capable, to be strong, to be powerful, to do something. So what is our Lord saying in verse 3? Watch carefully. He says, Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born from above, he has no power, he has no ability, he cannot even of himself see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I want to just show you something just from the book of John. Have you ever wondered what fallen man cannot do apart from regeneration? Let me 
show you just from the book of John what natural man, unsaved man, fallen man cannot do apart from regeneration. The first one is found in verse 3. Look at it. Very, very, I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, he can't perceive it. He can't grasp it. He can't understand it. He does not visualize its importance. Now, if you want a, a correlating verse, just put down 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Because there the Bible says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. So unless a man is regenerated, he cannot even perceive or grasp or understand in any way the kingdom of God. And here's the second thing that man cannot do apart from regeneration. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Very, very, I say to thee, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? Unless you are regenerated, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot even enter into the kingdom of God. Look in John 6 and verse 47. John 6 verse 47. Or verse uh, 40. Oh, let's see, verse... 
In John chapter 3, Nicodemus understood the necessity of a new birth, but he did not understand the comparison. Look in verse 4, John 3 and verse 4. After our Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, a man must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus understood he must be born again. He just did not understand how he could be born again. How could a man enter his mother's womb the second time when he's old? And so our Lord then, in answer to Nicodemus' question, actually draws a comparison between the spiritual birth and the physical birth. He draws a comparison, basically, between what you and I would call the natural birth and regeneration. And what I want to do today is to attempt to elucidate that comparison. So please keep in mind the two things that we're thinking about. We're thinking about a physical birth, and we're thinking about a spiritual birth. Okay? The spiritual birth is called a new birth, or regeneration, or being begotten. By the way, uh, the word uh, is gonna, which means I beget. So it's, it's variously translated as the new birth, or born again, or regeneration. It's the same thing, okay? Now, here's a comparison between physical birth and the spiritual birth. First and foremost, there must be implantation. There must be implantation. Physical birth begins with conception. You know, a simple definition of conception is this. The implantation of life. That's it. The implantation of life. Life is planted within the womb. Now listen carefully. It is not necessary for the father or the mother to know when that life is implanted. At most times, they don't know it is simply there. Both may be absolutely and totally ignorant of the life that exists within the mother for a time. Nevertheless, that life is there. And that life may exist without their knowledge and not the knowledge of others. The only way that a mother eventually discovers that she is pregnant is because of the signs of life within her. Are you listening? There would never be any signs or evidences of pregnancy if no life was present. Life must be there for there to be signs and evidences of life. Likewise, in the spiritual realm, there must be a divine conception. There must be a divine implantation of life. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, Ephesians 2 and verse 5, and Colossians 2 and verse 13, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if we are dead spiritually, that means obviously we have no spiritual life in and of ourselves. We are dead toward God. Do you remember the statement that the Father made concerning the prodigal son when he came back in Luke 15 and verse 32? Here's what the Father said. It was meet that we should make Mary and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. Was lost in his now, the brother had a physical life, but he did not have a spiritual life. Sinners may have a physical life, but they do not have a spiritual life. They are dead toward God. Now, in John 3 and verse 3, when our Lord says, Verily, verily, I say that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Our Lord uses the term genethe, which is heiress passive of genaho, which means to beget. And heiress, once again, means something is done once for all, and it's never to be repeated, repeated. And it, it, the passive means it is something that happens to you. You are not active in it. It's an heiress passive. You were begotten. You had no part in it. You were passive. Now, let me just show you. Hold John 3, but turn your Bibles to 1 John 5. Here's the same exact truth in 1 John 5 and verse 1. Look at what our Lord says. 1 John 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now the interesting thing is this. Literally what 1 John 5 and verse 1 says is this. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ has been begotten of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that has been begotten of him. In other words, he is saying, basically, based upon the Greek tense and the construction of this sentence, the reason we believe is because we have been begotten of God. It was God who regenerated us. It was God who began us. It was God who gave us life. The word born in verse John 5 and verse 1 is a perfect passage, which means, once again, that we had nothing to do with the game, we were begotten. Now, remember, if you would please, here's an analogy between the physical birth and the spiritual birth. Let me ask you some questions. How many of you decided to be born physically? Hmm. What part did you play in your physical birth? Absolutely none. You were conceived and ultimately born based upon the wills of others. You did not make a decision. You did not take the first step. You did not coerce your parents into conceiving you. You could do none of those things because you had no existence. You were born, you were conceived totally and completely based upon their purpose and will. Now, what does the Bible say in James 1 18? You don't have to turn back there. Of his own will begat he us. I hope you're beginning to get the picture that regeneration is an act of God alone. God is the sovereign, God is the giver of life, and God alone can give life. That is true physically, that is true spiritually. 
In fact, follow me very quickly nearby. Just look if you would. But first of all, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, and verse 19, you'll see this prophesied and spoken of very plainly in Ezekiel 11. Notice if you would please, uh, verse 19, I believe it is. Yes. Ezekiel 11, verse 19, look what God says. And I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. Now, who is it that's giving you a new heart? Who is it that's writing the new spirit with you? It's God. Look in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. You've got a plain passage. Look in John 1, and let's read verses 11, 12, and 13. John 1, verse 11. Look at it carefully. John 1, verse 11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Now watch. But as many as received him, to them did he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. Hmm. Watch. Which were born, not of blood, that is your ancestry had nothing to do with it, nor the will of flesh, that is your works had nothing to do with it, nor the will of man, that is your will had nothing to do with it, but of God. Now let me show you how to read this. If you will note, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, those are all negatives. Okay? Let's put the negatives in the parentheses and not read them, okay? Let's go back to verse 12. But as many as received him, but then gave you power to become the sons of God, even if believe on his name, which were born of God. Why did you receive him? Why did you believe on his name? Because you were begotten of God. You were regenerated by God. You see that? Regeneration is an act of God. You don't have to turn there, but you remember in Acts 16, in regard to Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. With the result that she attended to the things which were spoken by Paul. Why did she listen to Paul? Why did she repent and believe? Because the Lord opened her heart. Now the Bible says in Romans 9, verse 16, So then, it is not of him that runneth, nor of him that willeth, but of God that showeth mercy. Philippians 2 and verse 13, For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. You said, I came to Christ, I will to come to Christ. Yes. And I want to serve him, yes. But why did you will to come to Christ? Because it is God who worked in you. He regenerated you. He gave you life. Now, get ready for a definition. Here it is. Regeneration is that act of God. Regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man. Let me make another statement. Regeneration is the secret and the inscrutable work of God that is never directly perceived by man, but can only be perceived by its effects. Regeneration is the act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man. Regeneration is the secret and suitable work of God that is never directly perceived by man, but can be perceived only by its effects. Can a husband and wife perceive conception? Conception is only known by its effects. Can we perceive God's act of implanting life? No, it's only known by its effects. Conversion, listen carefully, is the evidence and the manifestation of regeneration. In regeneration, God works alone. There is no cooperation on the part of the sinner. How could there be? A child does not cooperate in his birth. The universe does not cooperate in its creation. And dead men do not cooperate in their resurrection. Now, just as it is impossible to know when conception takes place physically, it is also impossible to know when regeneration takes place. Both regeneration and conception are only known by their effects. So, first and foremost, there must be implantation. Secondly, there must be maturation. Listen to this statement. The implantation of life is insufficient in and of itself. You said that the life is fair. I understand that. But in order for that life to be made manifest, there must be a maturation. That is, there must be a maturing. Once physical conception is accomplished, shortly thereafter, there begins to be Evidence of life. Now that evidence may be imperceptible at first. Originally, the wife may think that she's sick. She has a virus. Her own, her own, her own dry wife. You know, or she needs to go to the doctor because all of a sudden she's gaining weight or something. But all of a sudden, two and two makes four and she realizes that she's pregnant. I never will forget Barbara Strain. How old was she, 41? She was 44. And she was sick. Oh, she was sick. Morning after morning she was sick. Finally she went to the doctor and said, You haven't given something. I'm so sick I can't hold my head up. The doctor examined her. He said, Ma'am, you're not sick. You're pregnant. She said, What? My baby is 22 years old. He said, I don't care how old your baby is. You're pregnant. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It may not necessarily be perceived at first, but all of a sudden, it becomes obvious to the mother that she is with child. And then, later on, it becomes obvious to everyone that she's with child. Now, it is similarly true in the spiritual realm. Once life is planted into the soul, then there begins that which is called conviction. 
Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby he moves us to be grieved and broken for our sins and our rebellion. In conviction, he opens our eyes and enlightens our minds to our lost condition and shows us our need of Jesus Christ and it empowers and enables us to turn from our sins unto faith in Jesus Christ. Let me show you a beautiful picture found in the book of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 31 if you would. And look at verses 18 and 19. Here are wonderful pictures, or a wonderful picture, I should say, of how regeneration and conversion or conviction go hand in hand. Notice Jeremiah chapter 31, and let's read verses 18 and 19. Jeremiah 31, verse 18. God says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, as a bullock accustomed to the yoke. Now look what he says. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For out the Lord my God. Now turn thou me, and I shall be turned. In other words, God, if you don't turn me, I will never be turned. If you don't implant life in me, I will never come to you. Now watch the next verse. Surely after that I was turned. After God did something for me, what did I do? I repented. And after that I instructed, and I spoke upon, I was instructed, and I spoke upon my pride. I was ashamed and confounded because I didn't bear the reproach of my youth. So when does conviction and when does turning come? Only after the implantation of life. Now, you're going to ask me a simple question. And that question is this. How long does conviction take? The answer is that's entirely after the fall. Let me ask you a question. How long does it take to have a baby? You're going to say nine months. Well, Dr. Owen can tell you. There have been many babies that were born earlier than nine months, some even after nine months. When's a baby born? Six months. You're not a real child. 
But yeah, if you've been in the womb, for six months, you're not a real child. That's ridiculous. That's right. The issue is not how long you've been in the womb. The issue is was there a real child born. Those whom the Father regenerates, the Holy Spirit converts. Let me show you. Look in your Bible, John chapter 11. Here is a perfect picture of regeneration and conversion. I'm trying to tell you that these things go together. You can only have one without the other. John chapter 11. And let's begin reading in verse 39. John 11, verse 39. You know that Lazarus has died. Our Lord has told Mary and Martha that they shall see the power of God. Verse 39. Jesus said, Take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said, hey, Lord, by this time he's speaking. For he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Said I not believe that if I was to believe, I should have seen the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with great clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus said to him, Loose him, and let him go. Now let me ask you a question. Now think very deeply, very seriously about this question. Did God give Lazarus life inside that tomb that enabled him to walk out? Or did he only give him life after he got up and walked out? What's the answer? Had he not given life in the tomb, he never would have gotten up and walked out, right? Giving him life in the tomb is a picture of regeneration. When he walks out of the darkness of death into light and takes off the gray clothes, that's a picture of conversion. And by the way, once our Lord said Lazarus come forth, he that was given life instinctly will be the voice of Christ. So those whom God regenerates, he converts. And it's only because of regeneration that we can come to Christ in conversion, in repentance, and faith. Now watch. I said there must be an implantation. There must be maturation, there must be manifestation, but fourthly, and lastly, there must be assimilation. Now this point should be obvious. In order to live, in order to exercise life, one must be able to assimilate oxygen and food. In some cases, listen carefully, in some cases women have gone through implantation, maturation, and manifestation only to produce a stillborn child. While it is true that God does not produce any stillborn children, there are plenty of them in churches that men have produced. Our churches are full of individuals who have been converted, given assurance, and guaranteed a place in heaven by some pastor or by some Christian worker who have never, ever been regenerated and converted by God. I like the illustration of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a Presbyterian evangelist. He was walking down the street one day and he met a man who was a drunk. And the man drunk and in his stupor said, Oh, Brother Sunday said, Don't you remember me? Billy Sunday said, I'm sorry, I don't know. We've ever seen you in my life. Oh, yeah. He said, Brother Sunday said, I'm one of your converts. Billy Sunday kept running walking. He said, Bless God, you must be. You're certainly not one of God's. And there are plenty in our churches where the converts are pastors and not one of God. Now listen carefully. Would you not think something was wrong with a newborn baby that never cried, was never hungry, never thirsted, and never grew, and never developed? Wouldn't you think there's something wrong with a physical child like that? How is it that we understand that in the physical realm, but we don't put two and two together in the spiritual realm? And we just assume that everybody sitting in church buildings are real genuine Christians, although they never hunger after the word of God, they never thirst after righteousness, they never grow, they never develop, they're just there. Something is wrong. When a child is supposedly produced, and yet he never cries, he never hungers, he never thirsts, he never grows. Now let me tell you. I can tell you the very first two things that happens in a real, live baby. What are they? The very first thing he does is he cries. And the second thing is he desires God. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the book of Galatians chapter 4, and look at verses 4 through 6. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made of the law, to redeem them that run of the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now watch. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Did you hear that? And because you are sons, here's the reason why God sent his spirit. Because you are sons, because you've been regenerated by him, he has sent his spirit into your heart, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The most natural thing for a newborn child to do is to cry. The most natural thing for a newborn Christian to do is to cry to his heavenly father. 
What? I love this. He says in verse 6, And because your sons, God, have sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Hebrew word Abba literally means Papa. Because your sons, because you've been regenerated, God sent forth the spirit, now in conversion, and you're able to look at your heavenly father and cry, Papa. Papa is a term of endearment and intimacy. I love to hear my grandkids call me Papa. And they know that whenever they have needed anything or in trouble, they can always call Papa. And I'm going to come back. Do you think I'm any different from my Heavenly Father? Our Heavenly Father is far greater than I could ever be. And what are you saying is, I am your Heavenly Father. You cry to me. And we do it instinctively and naturally. Instantaneously. I remember when Henry and I were hauling that lumber. You remember that, Henry? I had my truck full of lumber. I had a trailer full of lumber. I was doing about 15 miles an hour in second gear. And that load of lumber in that trailer shifted. And guess what? I looked in my rearview mirror, and the trailer was passing me. And when it got almost even in my back bumper, it just took my truck and was pushing it off the road into the ditch, into the pine trees. And instinctively, without even thinking, the first thing I cried was, help, Paul. And guess what? We stopped just off the road in the ditch. And within five minutes, another truck had come by, four-wheel drive truck. They helped us reload our lumber and pull us out of the ditch and got us on our way. But the point is, you instinctively cry because he is your father. The most natural thing for a real, living child of God to do is to pray. The second thing, if you look in your Bible, is the first Peter 2 and verses 1 and 2. First Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Look what Scripture says. First Peter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, that's conversion. You turn from all of those things. You lay them aside, you turn from them, and then what? Verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Hmm. There's something wrong with a professing Christian who never hungers for the word of God. Are you listening? If we have been truly regenerated by God, if we've been truly converted by God, we will hunger after his word. Why? It is our milk, it is our meat, it is our nourishment, it is our sustenance. And you cannot grow without it. You cannot grow without the word of God. Look in your Bibles to 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Notice if you what the scripture says. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace and, or even in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot grow in grace without growing in knowledge. Are you listening? Stillborns neither cry nor eat. Only those who have life cry and eat. The evidence that we've been begotten of God is that we have come to Him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We turn from our sins and we love His Word and we grow in His Word. We cannot cease from feeding upon His Word because if we did so, we would cease growing and cease maturing. The proof that we are genuinely children of our Heavenly Father is found and that we are continually being conformed to his image. One last passage. Look in your Bibles to Matthew 5 and verses 44 and 45. Matthew 5. Notice verse 44. Look what our Lord says. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Why should we act the way God would have us to act? Why should we do what God would have us do? That you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? If you're my children, you're going to look like me, act like me, walk like me, talk like me. You see what I'm saying? If we're his children, we'll be constantly and continually bringing our lives in conformity to the word of God. Now, just like in a physical life, there must be an implantation, a maturation, a manifestation, and a assimilation for there to be a real living child. So in the spiritual realm, there must be an implantation, there must be a maturation, a manifestation, and an assimilation to be a real living Christian. It's the work of God and regeneration. And when he regenerates us, in time, he births us. And in conversion, we come to him in repentance and faith, turning from our sins and trusting only in him. And then crying to him, and sustaining ourselves by His Word. Now you can judge whether you're converted or whether others are converted. And just like I told you earlier, if you could figure out that something is wrong with a newborn baby that never moved, that never cried, that never hungered or thirsted, you can still figure out in the spiritual realm. There's something wrong with Christians who do not want to do right, who do not love the Lord, who hate or despise His Word and His commands. There's something seriously wrong. And the fact is, they're still born. Not of God, but of me. That's great. Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to believe it and bow to it. Help us to bring our lives in conformity to it. Give us grace that we may serve you acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Use this message to teach, to reach, 
Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read the first eight verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rent and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Now it's certainly not my intention today to go down through all of these scriptures, but I believe if I started at verse 1 and worked my way down to verse 8, I could demonstrate to you that there are indeed uh, proper times for each one of these things that Solomon the wise man mentions. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. All of these things. But I want to emphasize verse 8 today. He says a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I'm going to bring a message today which I have brought about 12 years ago entitled The Biblical Doctrine of Hatred. Now some of you may remember the message, but I've been asked to deal with this, this subject again and also because from some of you as well as some of the other people who receive the uh, CDs and DVDs on a regular basis, there have been numerous questions. Uh, and I want to try to answer and resolve those questions for each one of them. When I first preached this message years ago, Harold Hardy, who uh, is now with the Lord, by the way, he carried copies of this message around with him on cassette uh, form. And uh, he would hand those things out like candy. And so one day I asked him, I said, Harold, I said, why in the world are you handing out a message like this to, to people that you meet? I said, why don't you start with a message that's easier to receive and then kind of work them into something like this? And I never will forget what he said. He said, I want to separate the wheat from the chaff right away. He said, I don't want to waste my time, my money, or the cassettes on those who do not want all of God's Word. Now, I want to tell you this. I can assure you this message will indeed separate the wheat from the chaff. It will separate those who seriously desire the Word of God from those who do not. It will also make you realize that there are numerous passages in the Bible that have been ignored, overlooked, and untaught. And the amazing thing is when you hear a message like this, the immediate response is, well, I've just never heard anything like that before. Well, may I remind you, just because you've never heard it before does not mean that it's not true. If it's in the Bible, it is true. Because God's Word is truth. Now, if you look down in verse 8 again, he said a time to love and a time to hate. So God says there's a time to love and there's a time to hate. How often have we been told that it's wrong to hate? 
from our childhood, it has been instilled in us that hatred is wrong, wicked, and vile, and that we should never under any circumstances hate. And yet God says very clearly in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8, there is a time to hate. Now let me ask you, if hatred is wicked and wrong in and of itself, how could God righteously tell us there is a time to hate? Now, certainly, and I want to make this distinction at the very beginning, I will also make it as I progress in this message, but I want you to understand that unbiblical, unrighteous, and ungodly hatred is condemned over and over in the Bible. And when I'm talking about a biblical hatred, I'm not talking about all the ill will and vindictiveness and wickedness that swells up in our heart. You see, the problem is that when you and I hear the word hatred, we normally think of the humanistic, self-centered, and ungodly type of hatred. Now, there is that tendency in every man by nature. That is why God, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 17, said this, Thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thy heart. So, this self-centered, unbiblical, ungodly hatred is condemned in Scripture. That's why Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24, our Lord deals with it, and he says, He who hated his brother in his heart is already guilty of murder. So, there is a fallen, ungodly type of hatred as well. Now, just simply because there exists an unrighteous and unbiblical hatred, that does not negate the fact that there is a righteous and a biblical hatred. You do not throw out doctrines simply because those doctrines are misused, abused, or misunderstood. You've heard the old expression, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, just simply because there's an abundance of adultery and fornication, you don't throw out marital sex, which God himself says is honorable in all in the bed on the file. You don't throw out the doctrine of baptism just because some individuals believe in baptismal regeneration. No, what you do is you teach the correct biblical doctrine, and then, of course, you apply it. You don't you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. What we have to do is shun the ungodly, unbiblical interpretations and keep the biblical doctrine. So, in like manner, there is a biblical doctrine of hatred, just like there is an unbiblical hatred. Now, I want to challenge you this morning to examine four fallacies in light of the Word of God. Now, I've already told you they're fallacies, which means they are untrue. But here are four concepts that you have been taught all of your life. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to warn you right now, that unless you're willing to think biblically, you're going to be upset with me even before I have time to explain these concepts. Okay? Here are the four fallacies, and each one of us have been taught these, most of us, from our childhood, at least we've been taught three of them. The first one is this, God loves everyone. The second one is, God loves everyone equally. The third one is, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And the fourth one is, God does not hate anyone. Now, I want to take these four things and examine them in light of Scripture. And hopefully, before I finish today, you're going to understand that each of these four concepts are basically untrue when they are presented just on face value. Now, when the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8, 
There's a time to love and a time to hate. The Hebrew word for hate is the word sonne, which accurately and literally translated means to hate. You cannot water it down. You cannot twist it and pervert it and try to make it mean something else. The word simply means to hate. God says there is a time to hate. Now, in order to demonstrate the validity of this doctrine, that is the biblical doctrine of hatred, I want to give you three points from the Word of God. I want you to see these with me. I want you to see, first of all, the sovereign's hatred, secondly, the saint's hatred, and thirdly, the Savior's hatred. So let's begin looking at the first point, the sovereign's hatred. Now, in one sense of the word, this point is the easiest of the entire message. Why am I saying it's the easiest of the entire message? Because there are so many scriptures that will quickly and very clearly illustrate this point. Now, one of the very first things that we're taught is that God loves everyone. My question is, how does that statement stack up against the scriptures? Well, we know, listen carefully, that God does not love everyone because the scriptures teach us that there is at least one person that God hated. You say, where in the world do you find that in the Bible? Well, turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1 and then to Romans chapter 9. Malachi chapter 1 and then we're going to Romans chapter 9. Malachi, of course, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, and then we're going to Romans chapter 9. So watch carefully as I read from the book of Malachi chapter 1, beginning there with verses 2 and 3. Malachi 1, verse 2. Look what God says. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, what did God just get out of his mouth? God says, I loved you. They said, wherein have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, said the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And what's the proof that he hated Esau? He laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is quoting from Malachi chapter 1. And in Romans 9 and verse 13, he gives a statement, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, when you look at Malachi 1, the word hatred there, or hated, is the same Hebrew word, sonai, that is translated in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8, when God says there is a time to hate. So, the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. When you get to the Romans 9 in verse 13, of course it's Greek here, but the word, Greek word is meseo, which means to despise or to hate. Now, God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, let me show you something. Let me show you how difficult it is to extricate yourself from the problem that I'm presenting to you. Someone says, oh, but Brother Weaver, I can get out of that. Because all I have to do is interpret Malachi 1 in Romans chapter 9 is the word hate there. I can interpret that to mean to love less. So all that means is that God loved Jacob. He just loved Esau less. Well, if you interpret it that way, 
What have you done to the second fallacy or the second concept that we've always been taught that God loves everyone equally? You see what I'm saying? You're not going to get yourself out of the problem by trying to interpret that word as to mean love less. No, he said, Jacob have I love, but Esau have I hated. You cannot have it both ways. And by the way, I hope you understand that it is unethical as well as certainly unbiblical to take a word which literally means to hate and translate it to mean to love less or to interpret it to mean to love less. God said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So there's at least one individual we know that God hates. So you cannot say that God loves everybody because Jacob, uh, Jacob was loved, but Esau was hated. I suppose one of the funniest incidents I've ever heard about uh, was an incident that happened in Kentucky. There were two pastors that had a radio program. And it was one of these call-in radio programs where you called in and asked a question, a Bible question, and they answered it. But the interesting thing is, every caller that called in, one of the pastors answered the phone and he would answer it like this, Hello, God loves everybody and especially you. What is your question, please? And so, so the preacher answered the phone. He said, Hello, God loves everybody and especially you. What is your question, please? And the man said, my name is Esau. Does God love me? All of a sudden, there was silence on the radio program. Well, how can you answer that question if you're going to say that God loves everybody? Because God says, I hated Esau. Now, is it not reasonable to assume that if God hated one individual... There may be other individuals that God hates as well. You say, what are you talking about? Well, here's what the problem that you and I have to deal with. The problem is we have been brainwashed and propagandized that it is always wrong and wicked to hate. Now, let me tell you something, folks. If God hates, his hatred is a holy hatred, and therefore hatred is not sin in and of itself. Because if you say hatred is always wrong under every circumstance, in every situation, then you're charging God with being sinful. Because the Bible does teach us that God hates. I can assure you that God's hatred is a holy, righteous hatred. Now, let me demonstrate for you. Turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, and let's begin reading there with verse 16. I'm just trying to establish the principle from Scripture that God does hate. Look in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 6, and let's begin reading there with verse 16. Proverbs 6, verse 16. I don't know how you could extricate yourself from this passage, but that's all right too. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. What is it that God hates? What is a stench in his nostrils? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. 
Now note if you would back in verse 16, these six things that who hate? The Lord. I want you to note that's all caps. That is the holy name of God, Yahweh. These six things doth Yahweh hate, yea, seven are abomination to him. So we know that God hates. Now, it does not particularly say in this passage that God hates sinners, but it does tell us that God hates, and God hates certain things. Now, in order to undergird this principle, look in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 44 and verse 4. Jeremiah 44 and verse 4. And here God is referring once again to sin, but look what he says. Jeremiah 44, verse 4. Howbeit I send unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing which I hate. Now he's talking about sin. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about wickedness. God said, I sent my prophets to you. And what did they say? They said, Oh, do not this abominable thing which God hates. So God does hate. Look in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Zechariah, right next to the book of Malachi, Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 17. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 17. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Now I want you to note, God says, and let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. So now we're talking about an unbiblical and an ungodly hatred. God says, do not be consumed with an unbiblical and ungodly hatred, and love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Now God says, there's a biblical hatred. What I'm hating, says God, are those things that are unbiblical, ungodly, and unrighteous. So very obviously, God does Hate, and he does hate sin. Now, one of the ways that preachers and other Christians have tried to explain away the biblical doctrine of hatred, and especially these straightforward statements, is by explaining, well, you see, the truth is, God loves a sinner, but he hates a sin. Now, that sounds pretty good. God loves a sinner, but he hates a sin. Now, I want you to stop with me just a moment and think about that statement. God loves a sinner, but he hates the sin. Here my question, here's my question. How much sin exists apart from the sin? Is it uh, our pride, arrogance, lying, fornication, murder, adultery, and theft just simply floating around somewhere in the universe. Are they? No. Do you realize it is impossible to have sin without sinners? If there were no sinners, there would not be any sin. All I'm trying to tell you is this, folks. Sin does not exist in abstraction it exists in the sinful heart, a man. So how can you take a statement, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin, because the truth is there'd be no sin without the sinner. Now, I'm going to show you from the Bible, and I'm listen to me now very carefully. I'm going to show you from the Bible that God not only hates sin, but God hates sinners. 
said, believe it, the believer. How can you say that? How can you say that God hates sinners? Because the Bible says so. You say, but wait a minute. I thought God loved sinners. He does. Well, you say, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Yes, I can. Because the Bible teaches both truths. This is what you call an antinomy. You know what an antinomy is? An antinomy is a seeming contradiction. In reality, it is no contradiction at all. It just seems to be that way. But the same Bible that teaches that God loves sinners is also the same Bible that teaches that God hates sinners. You say, how can that be? Well, let me just show you. Look in your Bibles to Psalm 7 to begin with and verse 11. I'm going to take you to the easy passages first. Uh, okay? Psalm 7. Look in verse 11. Now hold the book of Psalms. We're coming right back there. But look in Psalm 7 and verse 11 first. The Bible says that God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now you say, Brother Weaver, the Bible doesn't say there that God hates sinners. It just says that God is angry with them every day. That is true. I understand that. But I'm not through yet. I'm just showing you that there is never a moment when the anger of God does not burn hot against rebellious sinners. God is angry with the wicked every day. Sinners may have many feast days, but they never have any safe days. Because God's anger is burning hot against them. Look in your Bibles, holding Psalms now, but go in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 19. Deuteronomy 32, verse 19. Deuteronomy 32, verse 19. Are you watching? And when the Lord saw it, He abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and his daughters. Now here the Bible didn't say that God hated sin. Here the Bible says that God hated sinners. He hated them because of the provoking of his sons and his daughters. So very clearly now, here are some individuals that God hates more and above that of Esau. Now, if that passage is not clear enough, I want you to go back in your Bibles to Psalm 5. And please remember that the word abhor is a very strong word for hatred. Okay? So look in Psalm 5, and let's begin reading with verse 4. Look what David says. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Are you looking? Thou hatest all the sins of the workers of iniquity. Is that what that verse says? Please help me. What does it say? Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing or lying. The Lord will abhor or hate the bloody and the deceitful man. Now, how do you get yourself out of this dilemma? The Bible says very plainly, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The Bible says that the Lord will abhor or hate the bloody and the deceitful man. 
So very obviously, there are some individuals that God does indeed hate. Look in your Bible for Psalm 10 and verse 3. Psalm 10, verse 3. Look what the Bible says. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord hateth far more. Why would God hate the covetous? Well, if you were to look in Ephesians 5 and verse 5, and don't, and Colossians 3 and verse 5, you'll find that covetousness is idolatry. But here the Bible says, the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom, what, the Lord abhorreth or hateth. So God hates the bloody and deceitful man. God hates the workers of iniquity. God hates the covetous who are idolaters. And then if you will turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and look at verse 14. Proverbs 22 verse 14. Now you see why I'm telling you this is the easiest point in this message. Because there is a multitude of scriptures that says that God hates. Not only does he hate sin, he hates sinners. Look in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 14. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is of a of the Lord shall fall therein. Uh-oh. He that is of a of the Lord shall fall therein. Now folks, let me just put it to you like this. If God truly hates the covetous, the bloody and the deceitful man, those who speak lying and those who work iniquity, then there are multitudes that are hated by God, and not just Esau. Now, I'm not going to ask that you turn there, but I'm going to ask that you remember this. I I, I used this passage last week. But do you remember in Romans 1, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, in talking about those people that did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and they began to worship the creature more than the Creator, and turn the glory of God into four-footed beasts and creeping things. The Bible says in verse 24, Wherefore God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them over to do those things which are not convenient. My question is this. When the Bible says that God gave them up and God gave them over, does that sound like an act of love to you? Now just think about that. Do you think that you could convince all of those people who were drowned in the flood that God loved them? Can you imagine Noah in the ark, floating on the water, with thousands of people drowning, begging for help, and on the back of the ark, he's got a bumper sticker that says, Smile, God loves you. Do you think you could honestly convince those people that God loved them? Do you believe that you could honestly convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians that God loved them? Look in your Bible, Exodus chapter 11. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to get the point across that when God judges and destroys, it is not an act of love. Look in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 7 at what God specifically says. And, And you need to remember this verse. Look in Exodus 11 and verse 7. In fact, uh, 
Uh, Let's begin reading with verse 5. Exodus 11, verse 5. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even in the firstborn of the maiden, maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. What's God saying? God is saying, I'm preserving my people and I'm destroying my enemies that you may know that I put a difference between them. you think you could convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians that God loved them? Do you think you could convince the Assyrians and the Babylonians that God loved them? And when you try to tell me that now, Brother Weaver, God loves everybody and God loves everybody equally, would you try to argue with me and convince me that God loved Judas exactly as much as he loved the Apostle Paul? I don't believe so. Would you try to tell me that God loved Judas, Haman, and Herod, and other notorious